From Jerusalem, Israel, this is From the Midwest to the Middle East, the podcast that explores everything new in U.S. and Israeli economy. Here's your host, Philip Stein. I'm really pleased to be having this podcast today. First of all, this episode is brought to you by Philip Stein and Associates, the largest U.S. CPA firm in Israel, providing U.S. tax services to Israelis, Americans, corporations, startups, and anyone else needing them. I'm very, very pleased today to have a uh, what I call a world expert on a topic that I think all of my listeners will find very interesting. My guest today is Avraham Sachs, who is an attorney with a private practice concentrating on Social Security law and benefits. He is a former assistant regional counsel for the Social Security Administration and for 24 years was the editor of the CCH Social Security Law Reporter. He is the author of two books on Social Security law. Mr. Sachs frequently lectures to both lay and professional groups across the U.S. on Social Security matters and advises clients on how to maximize their Social Security retirement benefits through optimal claiming strategies. Avram, welcome. Thank you. It's uh, good to talk with you, Philip. Not always do I have a guest who uh, maybe can uh, make money for my clients, but uh, it seems that you may have some tips that... uh, can enrich my clients literally. So let me get to the the first question of several that I have for you today. Um, I'm constantly asked the following question, and this is maybe starting at the end rather than the beginning, but I think it's important for people to hear, will Social Security be around in the future to pay me? Philip, I too often get this question, and it's not surprising that it comes up. After all, the media reports from time to time about the looming insolvency of the Social Security Trust Funds. And every so often we hear about proposals from Washington that are designed to restore solvency. I'm not a prophet, but the short answer is yes. I believe that Social Security will be around to pay benefits in the future. It may pay less than what it currently pays, although it doesn't have to. Here here are the facts. The most recent report of the trustees of the Social Security Trust Fund states that program costs will exceed revenue beginning in 2020, and by 2034, reserves will become depleted. At that point, if Congress does nothing, continuing income into the trust funds will be sufficient to pay 79% of scheduled benefits. However, I strongly believe that the solvency problem will be solved before we reach that point, and here's why. First, Social Security has been successful in reducing poverty amongst the elderly, and politicians know this. When Social Security started in 1939, the poverty rate among the elderly was 78%. By 2012, it had been reduced to 9.1%. In a 2008 congressional study reported that 44% of the elderly would be poor if Social Security didn't exist. And secondly, all insured workers, including politicians, benefit from Social Security. Even among those in the top economic quintile of the population, Social Security accounts for about 15% of the income for beneficiaries over age 65. Indeed, FDR famously said that he put payroll contributions into the program so as to give contributors a legal, moral, and political right to collect their pensions. With those taxes in there, he said no politician could ever scrap 
his social security program. What he actually said was a little bit saltier than that. But uh, <laughs> the, the taxes aren't a matter of economics. They're straight politics. So politicians are going to want to preserve the program. Uh, no. Times... You go, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, it's so interesting to me. Again, it's, it, I hope this is an off-topic, but... Uh, you know, 1939 is is a long time ago. It was obviously a very very visionary move, and I was recently a few months ago. I was in China, and I, I was in rural China. My wife has traveled there a lot. She knows a lot of people, and one of the things I know I met and talked to people is that there is no equivalent of Social Security in China. So. This poverty that you referred to, the 79% of elderly uh, were below the poverty line back in 39. In modern China today, basically, kids are having to support their parents who, you know, never left the farm, so to speak, because there is no, there's zero mechanism, there's no government money to help them. So there's a tremendous burden on the the second and third generation to sustain, give people their basic needs. Uh, so it's 2017, but there is a place in the world that really is probably back in 1939 in terms of social benefits. Politicians know this, and I think that is one of the best in reasons that we have um, that Social Security is going to be around for, for quite a while, uh, even though since the 30s, there have been forces around that have tried to destroy it. Uh, look, just during the Bush administration, there was an attempt to privatize it, uh, and then the stock market tanked, and it stopped that effort dead in its tracks. Okay, let me move now something more, more micro as opposed to macro. As you know, under certain circumstances, uh, one can start collecting Social Security benefits as early as age 62, and and start as late as age 70. I know this is a hard question, and probably you could spend an hour on it, but is there an ideal time to apply for benefits? Unfortunately, Philip, there is no one-size-fits-all, and you're right. I could spend uh, several hours talking about it, but I'll try to be brief here. If the goal is to strategize one's claim in order to maximize the cumulative lifetime benefits a couple can expect to receive over the anticipated lifetimes of both spouses, a number of factors serve to inform which strategy will optimize benefits. Those factors include a couple's earnings history, relative disparity in income between a husband and wife, their relative difference in age, and the life expectancy for each spouse. Someone who is expected to die before age 75 is not going to get the same advice as someone who is in excellent health and has grandparents who all lived into their 90s. Now, it's true that the longer you wait to apply, the higher will be the benefit. A benefit at age 70 is 75% higher than the benefit payable at age 62. However, even if both spouses are in excellent health, that doesn't mean they should both wait until age 70 before they apply. Indeed, if they did, they could be leaving thousands of dollars on the table because such a strategy is most likely to result in lower lifetime cumulative benefits. And also because of changes made by a 2015 amendment to the Social Security Act, those who are born on or before January 1st of 1954 can exercise a certain claiming strategy unavailable to those born after that date. 
so no, there is no ideal age. Uh, Philip, there are over there are 4,560 benefit claiming combinations for a couple between ages 62 <laughs> wow. and 70. The only wow. po- so, so as you can see, the only possible way to know which strategy is optimal is to enter data into benefit claiming software uh, and, you know, and, and run the numbers. Unfortunately, most such software is poorly designed, and even the good ones, the ones that I use, have their limitations. Right, and I mean, and and of course, no one no one knows their last day on this earth. So, um, you know that that that, there's no one that can tell you that as well. But let me move up a little more specific. We see certainly nowadays. I'm sure you see this also in the states. uh, People are working, uh, working full time uh, to a later age. But we do know that as of age 66, one can can work and start collecting benefits. Should a person wait until age 70 to apply for benefits? Or really what I think I'm asking, is there a break-even point for these people who are in the 66 to 70 range? Yeah, sure. Someone who reaches age 66 and is continuing to work should not necessarily wait until age 70 to apply for benefits. First, as I just mentioned, depending upon the age of the other spouse, the relative disparity in age, the amount of benefits, and life expectancy, it may be more advantageous to file a claim at age 68 or 69. I'm not being coy here. It's truly not possible to give a general answer because there are just too many variables. Each case, mm-hmm. each, each case has to be analyzed separately. And you know, I do this for my clients. And in my talks, I give an example where a couple that waits for both spouses to collect at age 70 lose about $4,200 in lifetime benefits over a couple that exercises a maximizing strategy. And the amount could be higher depending upon uh, what, you know, both parties, you know, both husband and wife have, have earned over their lifetimes. You, you ask about the break-even point. For, for those of your listeners who don't know, that refers to the point at which the cumulative benefits that are paid in a strategy that maximizes lifetime benefits begins to exceed the cumulative benefit that would have been paid had the couple or single individual immediately uh, begun to collect benefits as soon as possible. That point will vary, but it usually is somewhere between ages 79 and 83 depending upon the amounts involved and which benefit start dates are being compared. Okay, great great answer. And uh, if people really want to know, they, they should give you a call, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast and how to get more help from you. Um, let me move change the subject slightly to, to Medicare. While, while retirees living in Israel cannot use Medicare benefits in Israel, many people... Uh, consider paying for Medicare as additional insurance in the event they wish or need to travel to the U.S. for medical treatment. I know there's Medicare A, B, C, and D. Uh, can you review these letters of the alphabet for our listeners? Sure. Um, you know, the government likes uh, the alphabet soup, so uh, it's no surprise we have that. Medicare Part A covers most inpatient hospital services as well as services provided by other Medicare-approved institutional providers, such as nursing homes, home health agencies, and hospices. 
the nursing home services that are covered are for skilled services and not merely for custodial care. And they are covered only if immediately preceded by a hospital stay of at least three days in the 30-day period prior to admission. The benefit is available to anyone who is disabled under the Social Security Act or has reached age 65. It's automatic at age 65 if an individual has applied for Social Security benefits. Otherwise, the individual has to separately apply for it. If one has 40 quarters of coverage, Part A is free. If not, one may pay a premium for it, which this year is $417 a month. There are two major limitations on Part A coverage. One is a time limitation, and the second is a beneficiary cost-sharing requirement. Part A is limited to a hospital stay of 90 days per spell of illness and to a nursing home stay of 100 days per spell of injury. Of, of illness, mm-hmm. uh, a spell of, uh, and so there, that means that it really has to be a 60 day um, separation uh, between hospital or nursing home stays wow. um, to, for that spell of, of, of illness. Now, Part B refers to just about everything else. Specifically, it covers physician services as well as services of physician assistants, nurse practitioners, psychologists, social workers, and midwives. It also covers preventive services, outpatient hospital and ambulatory services, drugs furnished by a physician you know, in, in his office, not drugs that are prescribed. Uh, it also covers physical therapy, lab tests, ambulance services, um, durable medical devices, and certain home health services. Part B requires a monthly premium, which in two, 2017 is $134 a month or higher depending upon income. And due to complicated rules, most Social Security beneficiaries, however, this year will pay an average premium of just $109 a month. There are also deductibles and a 20% copay. (laughs) Because there are gaps in the coverage provided by Part B, people will often purchase something known as Medigap coverage from a private company to fill in those gaps. Moving on to Part C, this is known as Medicare Advantage, and it operates like an HMO or a PPO. A Medicare Advantage plan is offered by a private company approved by Medicare and provides all Medicare coverage, both Part A and B. It covers all Medicare services and may offer extra services such as vision, dental, and uh, hearing services, these plans may save money because costs are lower. However, like any HMO or PPO, services must be in-network and they uh, need to be deemed to be medically necessary by the plan. And uh, your listeners should note that Medigap policies will not work with Medicare Advantage plans. Mm-hmm. There are special rules that govern switching back and forth, however, between Medigap policies and Part C. And Philip, I think this is the wave of the future. I think we're going to see more emphasis uh, down the road on Medicare Part C as a way to control costs. All right, this C, just I have a little mini question. Is is it similar? Is it like an HMO for retirees? Uh, It's like an HMO in general Uh in that it's offered by a private company Mm -hmm. and 
and the services have to be in network, uh, and the services have to be medically necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, if uh, you have traditional Medicare, uh, as long as the provider uh, you know is covered by Medicare, uh, you can you can go get the the service. Right. You know, you don't need um, to demonstrate. Um, medical necessity in the way that you need to demonstrate that for Part C. And uh, uh, an individual who has Part C uh, that has a question about that may want to check with their um, their plan before obtaining the service to make sure that it is considered to be medically necessary so they're not left out in the cold having to pay full freight for the service. Gotcha. Okay, great. So, So moving on to Part D... Part D is the part of Medicare that provides outpatient prescription drug coverage. Part D is provided only through private insurance companies that have contracts with the government. It's never provided directly by the government like original Medicare is. If you want Part D, you must choose a Part D coverage that works with your Medicare health benefits. Uh, And if you uh, have original Medicare, then you need to choose a standalone Part D plan. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds quite complicated, even though it's only the first le- four letters of the alphabet. But uh, I'm, sh- I'm sure my listeners, if, if they need it, uh, now they know where to turn to. I have a question about Medicare B that often comes up. If someone, when they first start uh, to getting their Social Security or they're eligible for Medicare and they say, well, I'm, I'm in good health, I don't see myself going back, to, to the states for medical treatment and they and they opt not to pay the Medicare B. Can can they elect to join it at a later date? Yes, they they can elect to join at a later date, but they need to be careful. Uh, here's why. For each twelve month period that you delay enrollment in Medicare Part B, you will have to pay a ten percent Part B premium penalty unless you have insurance from your own or your spouse's current employer. Although your Part B premium amount is based on your income, the penalty is calculated based on the standard Part B premium, not on um, the additional amount um, that is paid because of um, having a higher income. So this penalty is then added to the actual premium payment. Note that if um, you are employed by a foreign employer with health that has health coverage for its employees, or if you are enrolled in a national health insurance program, you will meet the requirements for having health coverage in lieu of Medicare Part B and will not be penalized wow. for that late enrollment. Okay, that's... Um, ha- however, be careful. This does not apply to coverage provided by a retiree health plan. Mm-hmm. Now, even if it's your former employer's plan, if you're no longer employed, that retiree health plan does not count for purposes of avoiding the penalty for late enrollment in Medicare Part B. Well, that's really uh, interesting and helpful information. Um, let me go back now, back to Social Security. Are, are there any common mistakes you see people make when initially applying for their benefits? Yes. Uh, I think the biggest mistake uh, is something 
that we alluded to earlier, which is failing to realize that how you time the filing of an application can potentially make a significant difference in the cumulative lifetime benefit to which you and your spouse may be entitled. People don't realize uh, that they could be leaving as much as forty, fifty thousand dollars or more on the table in unclaimed benefits by failing to properly strategizing a claim for Social Security retirement benefits. Ninety-four uh, percent of all beneficiaries apply by the time they reach their full retirement age, and while some may need um, to to apply early for various reasons, they don't all need to do so. Um, Social Security agents are not permitted to give legal advice, and while they can tell you what benefit you will receive if you apply at a certain point in time, what they cannot do is tell you how to strategize the timing of your claims in order to maximize the amount of benefits you can expect to receive over your lifetime. This is, this is the biggest mistake. Uh, another mistake that people often uh, make is that uh, people apply for benefits prior to full retirement age, even though they are still working. And this is a mistake because earnings above a certain threshold uh, will result in a benefit reduction of $1 for every $2 over this threshold. Uh, and by the way, for your listeners, this year in 2017, that threshold is $16,920. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, higher, a higher threshold applies in the year one reaches their full retirement age. Another mistake is failing to properly notify the agency about a pension that one may receive that was based on employment um, that did not, for which one did not pay a tax, uh, social security tax. I'm not talking about income tax, I'm talking about FICA or SICA, which is social security tax. Eventually the agency is going to find out about the pension and then hit up the beneficiary for an overpayment of benefits that can amount to tens of thousands of dollars. And this is because uh, these types of pensions serve to reduce the Social Security benefits that one may receive unless one has had over 30 years of substantial earnings subject to tax under Social Security. And I want to add here, this does not refer to the uh, that people receive right, that right. pension that that pension it's important to, to to understand that pension is not based on one's earnings but there are other pensions you know if you work if you have a foreign employer and they pay you a pension and you have not paid social security tax on those earnings that pension is a pension based on non-covered earnings and needs to be reported to, to the agency. And sometimes people aren't getting the pension yet when they apply for the social security benefit. So they are truthfully answering no to the question if you have such a pension, but then they forget two, three, four, five years later when they begin to take that pension to notify the agency about the pension. Uh, and then, then they will find um, later on that they get uh, assessed an overpayment. Yes, we see that. We see this quite often. The, I believe it's called the windfall uh, benefits. Uh, it's called it's called the windfall elimination provision or the WEP. WEP, and uh, people are uh, get unpleasant surprises sometimes uh, when they, you know, because they they get their statements uh, about what they can anticipate in their Social Security benefits, but when they then disclose their Israeli pensions. Uh, 
they don't ever get that amount and uh but it's it is a provision that exists that I'm glad you brought it to my listeners attention in addition just for my listeners um and Avram the $16,000 or so uh limitation of earnings that someone can earn if they haven't yet reached full retirement age here in Israel, the test, if you're employed, that applies if you're self-employed, but if you're employed by an Israeli employer, it's uh, your limitation is 45 hours a month of, of employment. That is correct, yes. Okay, so I just wanted, people shouldn't think that uh, if they earn less than the 62,000 shekel, uh, you know, uh, a year, that they can get their full benefits. Um, I know you're planning a trip to Israel. Uh, can you tell my listeners a little about what your plans uh, when you are here? Sure. Um, I'm going to be uh, in Israel at the end of uh, this month, January, for about a week. And I'm going to be um, giving three public lectures on how to uh, strategize the timing of your claims for retirement benefits in order to maximize the benefits that you could potentially receive. Uh, I'm going to be giving one talk at the AACI Center in Yerushalayim on January the uh, 24th. Um, that, that's going to be at 7.30 in the evening. The following evening, I'm going to be in Ranana, uh, also at 7.30. Um, and that talk is sponsored by Ezra. Um, and they do not yet have a location, so um, people need to check with um, the uh, Ezra office to find out where that's going to be. And then um, it's uh, tentative at this point, but on uh, Sunday evening, the 29th, I'll be in Rehoboth, and uh, I'll be giving a talk there as well, although the exact time and location have yet to be determined. All right, so if any of my listeners would like to... Uh read more about you or reach out to you? Do, do, how, how would they contact you? The best way to reach me is through my email address, avram at asaxlaw.com. It's been great talking to you. I think uh, this is such a relevant subject. There, as you well know, there's a lot of not, not only U.S. citizens who live in Israel, but Israelis who worked for many years in the States, uh, uh, qualified for benefits uh, are are living back in Israel. Uh, it's hard to get information here, uh, so I think uh, for someone to have a ability to contact someone like you is is really very valuable. And we're uh, I'm very pleased to hear that you'll be speaking at several events to uh, help raise the level of consciousness when it comes to Social Security and Medicare. It certainly has raised mine today. I, I really thank you for taking the time and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Philip. I look forward to seeing you as well and uh, uh, being a resource for uh, your listeners uh, um, you know, in the next few weeks. I hope you enjoyed our podcast. Feel free to visit us at www.pstein.com or look for Philip Stein and Associates on Facebook and LinkedIn. 